One of the things I love to do over the Christmas and New Year period, and I realise we're a little way beyond the Christmas and New Year period, but I haven't been, had the opportunity to preach to you for about six weeks now. So anyway, one of the things I love to do, start the tape. One of the things I love to do <laughs> uh, over the Christmas and New Year period is to take a bit of time to myself, clear the decks, think about the last year, and begin to pray about the new year, to bring the new year before God and really to ask him, what is this new year about for me? What is it? Is there a word? Is there a theme? Is there a particular adventure to have? Is there something that I'm to discover this year? And often, or invariably, there's something personally for me that I want to do better. Uh, Maybe I want to do some press-ups or maybe there's something, something a little deeper, a little bit more sort of spiritually valuable for me. Sometimes it has to do with family life. How do I want to be a better parent, a better husband? Maybe it's all of the above. This year, uh, I was able to do that not just for myself on my own behalf, but also on the behalf of our church. That was a real privilege um, to be able to do that. And uh, not something that I took lightly. And, And for us, the thing that I felt, did I feel God saying it? I felt God saying it, but it's also something that I wanted almost to say to God as well as something I felt him saying to me on our behalf, was that my desire and what I believe God's desire for us is that this year, 2019, might be the year of salvation. It might be a year, the year of salvation. That is to say that my longing and our longing, Amy and I and our team, as we pray and as we think about this church, is that this would be a place where salvation, which is a biblical word that basically means rescue, where salvation, rescue would become the norm, that this would be a year, the year of salvation. Now, salvation in the Bible is never, despite actually what a lot of Christians believe, I think, or are led to believe, are taught to believe, it's never just about getting to heaven when you die. It includes the idea of an eternity with God, but salvation in the scriptures is about God bringing heaven to the here and now. It's about experiencing the life of the kingdom that Jesus embodied and demonstrated and displayed here and now. That is to say that salvation or uh, eternal life, to use another phrase, is about life today. Salvation matters and it matters today. And my prayer as we think about what it means for salvation, for this to be a year of salvation, my prayer is that every person who's a part of Trinity Church experiences more of the life of God's salvation this year. And that would, let's just headline that, what could that be for you? Maybe that would be your norm has been anxiety and you begin to experience peace. Your norm has been sleeplessness and you begin to sleep well. Salvation could look like uh, broken relationships being restored. Salvation could look like an area of unforgiveness and bitterness in your heart, just being given the grace to let go. Salvation could look like freedom from a habit, which if you were honest, you might even describe as an addiction. Salvation could look like an area of your heart being opened up in compassion in a new way. 
I want every one of us to experience a greater measure of the salvation that God has for us this year. But I also, salvation is never just for the church. It's never just for the in crowd, the ones who've already signed on the dotted line and said, yeah, I'm in. Salvation always points towards those who don't yet know. And my prayer and our prayer for Trinity, and I hope our prayer as Trinity, is that salvation, we would see people coming into relationship with God, experiencing the life of the kingdom, the peace, the grace, the mercy, the goodness of God for the first time, and we'd see it this year in a new way. That is my prayer, and I'm asking you to join me in praying that prayer. Lord, let this be the year of salvation. Alpha's a part of that. By the way, you don't, we don't get to outsource all of this to one program, one course. We just don't believe in that. We're not that church. If you're looking for a program-heavy church, you've come to the wrong place. We believe in the power that is already in the pews. We believe when each of us is equipped to do the mission of God, we're going to see the kingdom of God come in the city. Alpha is just an opportunity to be equipped. It's a place to bring the people you're already evangelizing to. Just bring them along, share a meal, ask the questions with them. Now, I was away on a retreat with some other pastors, and my boss, if you didn't know, is the bishop, <laughs> just after Christmas. And I was given a book on Jonah. It was this book by Tim Keller. It's called The Prodigal Prophet. And if you want to read a good book, uh, this is a good, good book. It's a really good book. And uh, we'll be talking a bit more about that book in time to come. In the moment of being given this book, I sort of went and retreated to my room. I began to read the book, and I thought, this is a great book. In fact, Jonah's a great book. We should do a teaching series on Jonah at church. I got really excited. And it was only after a little while, once I'd made that decision, and once we'd sort of decided to do that, that I put two and two together, and I realized that Jonah was the perfect thing. Jonah is the perfect thing for a church that's looking to see salvation. It's the perfect thing for a church to be looking at, because Jonah is a story, it's a picture, all about salvation. Now, some of you will know the story of Jonah. Those of you who've grown up in the church, maybe you went to Sunday school as a kid, you were at kids' church somewhere, you know this story. You've drawn the whale, you've imagined what it would be like to be in the whale for three days, you've done the thing, you've, you know, glue and sparkles all over it, whatever you've done, you know the story. It's such a compelling story. It's so applicable. And it almost reads like the kind of story, it almost reads like, a fair, reads like a fairy tale, but let me tell you this, Jonah is a serious, serious bit of literature. It is a beautiful, complex, and rich story. And something that we need to pay attention to, it carries deep themes. Themes like race and nationalism. Things like how does God call us and what does it look like when he does and what should we do in response to it? Themes like rebellion, themes like repentance, faith, and yes, themes like salvation. So for us, we want to dive deeply. <laughs> no pun intended. Thank you. Thank you. Where's George when you need him? He's writing songs with the kids. There we go. We, we want to dive deeply into Jonah. We're going to have seven or eight weeks on Jonah. Some of you are wondering how we're going to get seven and eight weeks on Jonah. Know this, we've limited it to seven or eight weeks on Jonah. Why don't we pray as we begin? Father God, you are the God of salvation. 
You're the God who brings us from death to life. You have plans to bring life into our community, in life, into our city. And I pray now that you would pour out your grace, your light and your life in this place. And I pray that you draw those furthest from you home today. I pray that you would grant the gift of faith today, saving faith in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's what we read. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. This phrase, the word of the Lord came, it is, it's like a calling card, like a business card of a prophet. When you read, when you see the words, the word of the Lord came, you know that what is to follow is a prophetic oracle. It is a prophetic speech. This phrase comes up in the Old Testament over a hundred times. And it's an introduction to many of the prophetic books. So what we know is about to follow is something from, or a word of the Lord from God to a prophet. It's a bit of a signpost for us. And we know that the prophet's job, the job of a prophet was firstly to hear the word of the Lord. That's sort of a basic qualification of a prophet. Can you hear the word of the Lord? And the second basic qualification of a prophet is that when you've heard the word of the Lord, you go and do the word of the Lord. That's just basically in the job description. And so Jonah and everyone who was reading this story of Jonah, when they hear this, when they see the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, the very thing they expect to come next is that Jonah goes and does what the Lord says. And that's what makes, what follows. Even in these first three verses, so incredibly strange. The whole idea of a biblical prophet is to do what God says. And the whole story of Jonah is based upon this idea that Jonah hears the word of the Lord and does something else. We don't see this immediate obedience from Jonah to the word of the Lord. In fact, we see this, that Jonah, instead of going where God sends him, does exactly the opposite. Why? Why is it that Jonah would do that? Well, in order to understand it, we need firstly to understand Jonah a little better. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Who is Jonah, son of Amittai? If we look at Jonah's background, first of all, we need to understand this. No background information is provided in the book of Jonah as to who Jonah is. And that lends us to the suspicion that Jonah would have already been well known. So if you were reading this, you'd already know who Jonah was. And in fact, there is a prophet named Jonah who's mentioned in 2 Kings. Who under the reign of Israel's king, Jeroboam, who was a failure of a king, an evil king spoke, who prophesied, and this is what we read about him. He, that is Jeroboam, not Jonah. He restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, there's that phrase again, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet who was from, from Gath, Hepha. They don't make names of places like they used to, do they? Now, if we were to read a little bit further, 
in this particular text in 2 Kings, what we'd read is that Jonah was all in for Jeroboam's military advance. He thought that the best thing Israel could do at this time in this place was to rouse the armies and take on the surrounding nations to go and kick them into touch and uh, the like. If, if you like, he was an intensely patriotic man. He was a nationalist. He wanted to see Israel marching forward. And this is the guy to whom the word of the Lord comes. This is the bloke who gets the message to go to Nineveh. And when we begin to understand who Jonah is, and then when we begin to look at who Nineveh are and the people of Nineveh are, we begin to understand why Jonah may have come up with the solution that he came up with. This is what we read about Nineveh. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Its wickedness has come up before me. It says go here in the NIV version. Literally in the original language, it says arise and go. What it means is get up right now. Right now, get up and go. It's like a sense of immediacy to it. Go right now. Go to Nineveh, preach against the great city of Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. I know there's a lot of detail here this morning. Stick with me. It's going to become important in weeks to come, particularly. But Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrian Empire was one of the most brutal empires in history. Uh, Nineveh was situated on the eastern bank of the Tigris River, which lies opposite uh, the city of Mosul, now the city of Mosul in northern Iraq. That's where it was situated. And it was known for being a brutal place, the capital, the heart of a brutal empire. To send a prophet there was an immensely strange thing to do. In fact, it was basically unprecedented. Up to this point, the prophets of Israel had been sent, funnily enough, to Israel. And they may have delivered a message or two to surrounding nations and the message generally was you're going to get your bums whooped. But really it was all about a message to the people of God. There had never been a prophet that was sent outside of the people of God, let alone called to go to pagan, to Gentile territory to deliver the message. So Jonah's dealing with this message and this calling on his life that's unprecedented. Maybe you can't understand it. And Nineveh alongside it is a very bad place. Assyria was one of the cruelest, as I said, and most violent empires of ancient times. For example, what, they had these practices. For, for example, if they captured enemies, typically what they, were, what they were known to do. Having captured the enemies, they'd put them to death. But what they'd do is they'd cut off both of their legs and one of their arms, leaving one arm uh, one arm left so they could shake their hands as the person was bleeding to death. They often forced friends and family members of of killed um, enemies to parade the decapitated heads of their loved ones on poles. They pulled out prisoners' tongues. They stretched their bodies so that they could be flayed alive. This was a terrorist state. Some of the stuff we saw in the last few years, ISIS, 
doing. This is the kind of thing that was just commonplace. It was just, it's what they were known for. And so maybe we need some sympathy for Jonah. Right? The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Go to that great city of Nineveh and preach against it. Its wickedness has come up before me. And Jonah's thinking, yeah, its wickedness has come up before me too, Lord. <laughs> and let's have a chat about that thing you asked me to do. It should be no surprise that what we read next, Jonah, verse 3, ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. (laughs) Ah, just love it. He ran away, I mean, it shouldn't, but I do. He ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. Now, there's some disagreement. In fact, there's a lot of disagreement around where Tarshish is. I'm going for southern Spain, maybe just because I want to imagine (laughs) Jonah on the beach in southern Spain. The point is that what people can agree on is that uh, Nineveh is east and Tarshish is west. Jonah is called to go by land and he goes to Joppa, which is now Jaffa, and he picks up a boat. Called to go by land, he goes by sea. This is outright rebellion. And what we find is that he's, he's fleeing. He, he, it, says, uh, it says, arise and go. And actually in the original language, again, we don't catch this here. It says, verse three, Jonah ran away. Literally it says, but Jonah arose and fled. He arose and went. He did get up immediately. But what he chose to do, chose to do is go in exactly the opposite direction. Jonah rebels against God. He flees from God. He's trying to escape the calling of God on his life. And maybe we can have a little bit of sympathy for him there. And maybe not in quite the same outright rebellion, but there are ways, aren't there, day to day that we do this. We feel that God might be saying, do this. And we think, we think well, is that really him? And we engage this gift known as rationality. We begin to rationalize the word of the Lord. Oh, could God really be saying that? Did God really say? You must not eat from the tree. Did God really say? Trust him in this area. Did God really say you shouldn't be? Perhaps it's not the best thing for you to be dating that person. They don't have a living relationship with God. Did God really say he wants you to sacrifice Financially, in that way for him, did, did God really say that you could trust him with your children? Did God really say that you could trust him with that diagnosis? Did God really say? We feel that temptation as human beings to run from the word of the Lord. Jonah's terrified, with good reason. He's terrified about what God's asking him to do. Imagine, imagine a Jewish rabbi being asked to go and deliver a message of judgment in Nazi Germany. He's terrified. He's confused. Why? Why, God? Why would you ask me to do this? Why would you want to send me to my enemies? He's confused because God, through the prophet Nahum, had already predicted a serious end. Why would you want to save people you've already told us are going to be judged? Why? He's theologically troubled. Can I get an amen? (laughs) 
God, what are you up to here? How could you possibly want this? How could you want this and be good? How could this be happening and and you call yourself good? Are you who I thought you were? See, Jonah thought God was the God who was always on his side in a simple way, in a simplistic way. That whatever Jonah wanted, God wanted too. And he thought that until God told him to do the thing he didn't want to do. And so for all these reasons, Jonah runs from God. He runs in the opposite direction. He runs in outright rebellion. Let me tell you this. That's not the only way to run from God. There's more than one way to run from the presence of God. See, the book of Jonah is a story in two halves. It's cut into two. And this is what I meant about this being way more than a, an, a child's fable. This is a beautiful piece of art. It's a beautiful piece of literature. And there are two scenes, and Jay, we can have that next slide up. And you can see this here. Just in case you think I'm clever, I stole this out of a book. I stole this out of the Tim Keller book. And you can look for that. Look at that just yourself right now. But as you can see, Jonah, the book of Jonah is divided into two. And in the first half, the first scene deals with Jonah, the pagans, who we're going to read, read about next week, and the sea. The second deals with Jonah, the pagans, and the city. And in the first half, Jonah receives God's word and responds in rebellion. In the second half, Jonah receives God's word and outwardly at least responds with agreement. In the first half, Jonah is sent to God's world with a word of warning, which leads to a response of obedience and repentance on behalf of the sailors. In the second half, we see God's warning through Jonah leads to, this is chapter three, verse four and beyond, leads to a response of repentance from the people of Nineveh. In the first half, the first scene we see Jonah's uh, taught that God's grace, Jonah is taught God's grace through the encounter with the fish. And in the second half, Jonah is caught, taught God's grace through an encounter with a plant. The whole point is that this is a story in two halves. Now, Tim Keller makes the connection, which I want to bring before you today. Between this story and another story that's raised in the scriptures, which also is a story, if you like, in two halves, and it's the story of the prodigal son. And many of you will know this story. The story of the prodigal son uh, is really a story of a prodigal father who has two sons. And you know, if you know the story, Jesus tells this story because he's getting some... He's getting some beef, he's getting some uh, trouble from the Pharisees who were telling him that he shouldn't be hanging out with prostitutes, tax collectors and sinners. And so Jesus makes the point that there is a father who is recklessly generous, who lavishes, whose design and desire is to lavish his love on every person. And so Jesus begins to make this point and he tells it. Uh, through a story, and if you don't know the story, here's the story. There's a son, a younger son, who tries to escape what he considers maybe to be the control of his father by taking his inheritance early and running from home. 
And if you don't know the culture of this age, you need to know that this would be tantamount to asking for the, wanting his father dead. It was like saying, look, let's imagine that you're dead. Give me my inheritance now. I'm going to run from home. And the son spends all of his inheritance on fast cars and fine wines and women and everything else. He rejects everything his father's given him. He rejects uh, the moral code that was passed down from his father. He rejects his father's expectations, his religious traditions. And he winds up regretting it. He winds up wallowing in pig muck and self-pity. And only then does he realize that he'd be better off going back to ask if he could serve in his father's house as a servant. Not expecting anything other than that. That's the first son. The first son is Jonah in the first half of the book. The first son is the son of rebellion who seeks salvation in the far country. And make no mistake, this son is seeking salvation. There isn't a person in human history that isn't seeking salvation. The question is this, where are you seeking it? Every person has a vision for salvation and every person has a methodology, a method, an aim, a way of getting there. This son has an aim and he believes that salvation will be found in the far country. Once he can get beyond the strictures and the limits of his world, of his father's constricting worldview with all its control and religion, then he'll be free and when he's free, he'll know freedom and yet... He ends up in the muck, begging for a place back, a place in his father's house. This child, this son is the son of this culture. Throwing off all tradition, all of our backstory just to find what we consider to be freedom. And there's another son, there's an older son, the older brother, who in contrast stays at home. Maybe he's a Victorian. <laughs> Externally speaking, he's a great son. He gets up early, he brushes his teeth twice a day, and he's got an electric toothbrush. <laughs> he makes his bed, turns it over, and just folds it a little bit on the corner. He does his chores. He's well-behaved. He's always at synagogue or chapel. He works in his father's house. He's dutiful. He gets up early, he goes to bed late, but here's the thing, he too wants his father dead. Because when his father's dead, he'll inherit everything. He's living in rebellion also. But it's a quiet rebellion. It's a religious rebellion. You know people like this? You're a person like this. I see myself in both of these sons. This son is not defined by rebellion, but by self-righteousness, by judgmentalism. This son is the first person to call out all the problems in the world. This son's the first person to call out all the problems in everyone else. This son is probably the reason the younger son went running. It's this culture that brings about a rebel culture. 
Which son is on the run from the father? Both. Both sons. Neither one has known or experienced the true nature of the father. Neither one has actually experienced what it might be like to live at home. Neither one knows salvation. They both know servitude. One, the older brother to a vision of the father that's inaccurate. The younger brother to enslavement in the far country. They both know what it's like to serve, but none of them knows what it's really like to be a son. Jonah is both of these sons. One son leaves home, one stays at home. But both sons have hearts which are far from the father. One was very religious, the other very rebellious. Neither knew salvation. One was very dutiful, the other decadent. And yet both miss the point, which was salvation. Jonah is both of these sons. In the first half of the book, he's the rebel son. In the second half, he's the externally obedient son. We leave the book of Jonah, we're not there yet, without really knowing if Jonah gets it. <laughs> the point is, is that the book of Jonah is not for Jonah, it's for you and I. These are both ways of running away from God and his salvation. Now you may be here this morning, and you may have been, you may have taken a trip, an extended vacation to the far country, and you may be there now, I've been there. I've been there. I know what it's like in the far country. I know what it's like to leave home with the promise of freedom, the taste of freedom on my lips. And let me tell you, it tastes good. Oh, it tastes good for a period of time. But I also know what it's like to be on my knees, my hands and knees in the muck, just longing to be back in my father's house. And I've been the older brother too. Still am. I've been the one that looks over, looks down my nose over my glasses, spec savers, glasses. at the younger brothers, the people who just don't get it. Self-righteously condemning others for the things that I myself have done. I've been the younger brother. I've been, I am the older brother too much of the time. What about you? Can you see yourself in this story? The point of the story of Jonah, the point of the story of the prodigal son is not the sons. The point of the story is not Jonah. The story is about a father. And it's the father who's prodigal. You know that word prodigal means reckless. He's the one who's really reckless all along. It's the father who lavishes himself, who spends himself. It's the father who allows the younger brother to go. It's the father who lives at home with that self-righteous, stuck-up older brother who doesn't chuck him out of home. It's the father who longs for both sons to come home. It's the father who longs for Nineveh to repent. It's the father who longs for Jonah to get it. 
In the book of Jonah, we see a father who is merciful. In the story of the prodigal son, in the life and the ministry of Jesus, we see a father who is so lavish in his grace. A father who sends his only son, Jesus, the new Jonah, the real Jonah, into the world to bring the world back to himself, who goes into the far country. That those in the far country might experience the welcome of the father who runs out to greet Those who've wandered away, who goes into the far country for the lost son and who goes outside the doors of the celebration that he's thrown for the young son to go and rescue the older son who won't come in, who won't experience the welcome of the father. This is the father. Salvation is this. This is the year of salvation. Salvation is this, living at home under the blessing of the father. That salvation, and this city needs that salvation, that message of salvation more than ever before. And our nation needs that message of salvation more than ever before. And you and I need that message of salvation more than ever before. There is a home, there is a father, and you and I are welcome. So the question is, will you come home? Will you come home? Will you receive the welcome of the Father? You don't have to stay in the far country any longer. You don't have to stay outside the celebration. You don't have to rely on rebellion to define you as different from the tradition you grew up with and hated. Nor do you have to rely on self-righteousness to make you right with God. In Jesus Christ, God has made you right with himself. And there's nothing you need to do now except come inside and get ready for the party. Father God, we come before you this morning. We long to be those who would say yes, who would experience the life of your kingdom today. We long to know what it is to come home. And as we journey through this Jonah story, we pray that this for us would be the year of salvation. I pray for every person here that by your Holy Spirit you would release salvation over them. Let us know what it looks like to live at home. Let us experience your grace and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.